We're going to be reading this morning in preparation for the message from Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 17, and I'm reading from the ASV version. If you've got your electronic version there, I'm sure you can find it. It's what I tend to do. So it's Acts 21, starting at verse 17. It's about Paul's visit to James in Jerusalem. It says, starting with verse 17, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done through the Gentiles through his ministry. When they had heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brothers, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves uh, along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what you have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from the blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Thanks, Mike. Well, good morning, church. We are, of course, uh, continuing on in our series through Acts. And we've reached that point in Acts that's really really quite action-packed. And we'll find for the rest of Acts also that there is plenty of engaging stuff there's plenty of accounts that are action-packed that uh, draw our interest. And if you were writing a movie script, you've really got all the ingredients available to us. We have the goodies and we have the baddies. We've got our main character, the hero of our story, who is under constant physical, emotional and even spiritual stress. And yet we find that he's able to come through. Now, I know that uh, this doesn't reveal great spiritual insight from myself, but as we've been trekking through Acts, it has struck me that the disciples in the early church suffered far more persecution than they were indeed rescued from. We tend to focus on those times when God miraculously intervenes, and yet time and again, he chooses not to. They are mocked, ridiculed, imprisoned, beaten, abused, even killed, yet still the church of Jesus Christ is not defeated. 
There is, of course, a lesson for the church in all of this. And while it's a reasonably large passage we're going to be looking at today, and we won't be going through it all in detail, I just want to point you to three observations from Acts 21 verse 17 right through to the end of Acts 23. There's a warning to pay attention to, an example to reflect upon, and a template to learn from as we watch Paul contend with the circumstances of life that surrounded him. Now, the background sees Paul and his travelling companions returning to the church in Jerusalem, as was his custom, whether to his home church in Antioch or on this occasion in Jerusalem. After each of his missionary journeys, he seeks to share, to report on all that God had been doing among the Gentiles in his work. This, we just read from Steve, leads to rejoicing on the part of James and the other elders in the church at Jerusalem. And how could they not be excited upon hearing the wonder of the gospel message being embraced by the Gentiles? I mean, do we not get excited today when we hear the work that God is doing here and now in the world? We have visiting missionaries perhaps serving overseas, sharing with us some of what God is doing. We had a a baptismal service a few weeks ago. We hear the testimonies of how God is changing people's hearts and minds here in this very place, and it excites us. We have other opportunity at times for people to come up and share with us what God is doing in their circle of influence, the people that, that they have opportunity to witness to, and it's exciting. We received an email from the Bible Society a few weeks ago. I'm sure some of you did too. Um, I I confess that I'm guilty. I actually didn't read it. But one night, my wife read it to me. And it really piqued my interest. This is what it said, this email from the Bible Society. It has been estimated that 20,000 people in China are becoming Christians, not every year, not even every month. It has been estimated that 20,000 people in China are becoming Christians every single day. That is what this email from the Bible Society said. Does that not blow your mind? Is that not incredible? What a work God is doing in that country. They go on to say, and I quote, others estimate that China could be the largest Christian nation in the world by 2020. That's four years away. Maybe 12 or 18 months ago, I read another article where the... Communist Party in China was really concerned that so many of its senior political members are becoming Christians. God is doing a mighty work in that country. As we come back to to our passage today, the elders are rightly excited to hear what God is doing amongst the Gentiles. Yet we're told here in the text there is an issue. The elders of the church express a problem that they have among the many Jews who had been converted among the inhabitants of the city. It was exciting to see these Jews converted, but there was a problem. And this leads us to our first observation, a warning to pay attention to. We read in verses 20 and 21 there that the situation is revealed, that the Christians who had been converted from Judaism had been told that Paul was teaching Jews to forsake their heritage, the teachings of Moses. And yet there's a bigger underlying concern that the church in Jerusalem 
was going to have to deal with. And indeed, any local church at times needs, needs to confront. These accusations against Paul and, and others that the church has to deal with from time to time would gain little traction without something we all love on some level or another. Without this being allowed to gain momentum, it would have no traction. I mean, which one of us does not pick up our ears, switch on mentally when someone says, did you hear about? Guess what I heard? Or I was told that so-and-so heard that so-and-so did this or said this or believes this. Proverbs 18 verse 8 says, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of the body. And it's this wanton desire to hear juicy morsels about others that become the lifeblood of so many of the articles that we read in our newspapers and magazines today, is it not? Many of these articles are unsubstantiated. We love hearing about others, especially if it relates to someone's shortcomings or failures. I don't know, maybe it makes us feel better about our own life, where we're at in our, our life. Perhaps we're jealous at, of the perceived success of someone else and we love to hear of, of someone unravelling. Whether what we hear are true or not almost seems to be of secondary concern at times. Friends, you know what God calls this? God calls it gossip. The warning for us to pay attention is that gossip undermines the gospel message. Acts 21, 17 to 26 records the effect of innuendo, half-truths, gossip and even slander in the life of the church. It brings to light a distinct lack of maturity among some of those new Christians in Jerusalem. And it's going to begin a chain of events that results in Paul's constant defence of his ministry before both Jew and Gentile, governor and king, culminating ultimately in a trip to Rome where he would stand before Caesar himself. The greatest danger to the church is not from without. There will always be those who will oppose, blaspheme, mock ignore or just live blissfully unaware of the gospel message. Yes, the church has, throughout its history, faced severe persecution from those around it. And even today, we understand there are brothers and sisters around the world that are in mortal danger because of the, the courage of their own faith. Yet the good news of Christ continues to make great inroads where we'd not expect, like in a country like China. In truth, it has always been attack from within that has caused the greatest harm to the church's unity, growth and testimony. It's when we are undermined or we feel betrayed by those who are close to us, fellow believers, that we are terribly grieved, that the testimony of the church is undermined. Now, let's not beat around the bush. The leaders in the church of Jerusalem were encountering gossip mongers. Those who slander others with the express purpose of stirring up trouble. Now, we understand that most truly effective slander involves an element of truth that's twisted to suit the particular outcome that is sought. 
Paul's enemies had used his exhortations to the Gentiles that they need not be burdened by the demands of the law and twisted it and then claimed that he said that their Jewish heritage is of no value. In fact, we know Paul was proud of his heritage. Understanding that indeed Christ was the Messiah that their very scriptures foretold. Knowing that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfil it. Now, I've got to say, I'm not aware of any malicious slanderers at Canterbury Gardens. But I guess if there is, I would encourage you to cease. Because the scriptures have heavy warnings for anyone that indulges in such practices. But for gossip to be truly effective, there are a few other dynamics required to be at work. And it's something we can all easily fall into the trap of. First dynamic is an appetite to listen. How does gossip spread? It spreads through you and me. It requires us to indulge the storyteller, to accept their statement on face value, and then to start think, I wonder who else might benefit from what I've just heard. You have the power to circumvent the rumour mill by refusing to indulge. If you have a reputation for calling gossip for what it is, second-hand, unsubstantiated rumour that would cause true hurt if it was said about you, that it is swill that continues to ruin relationships in this world today, causing division, not unity, leaving people to question the integrity of another where there is no factual basis for such. If this is you, you become the circuit breaker. Well, another dynamic that's required is a desire to circulate. If someone tells me something and I tap someone else on the shoulder, did you know? Guess what I just heard. Don't spread what you cannot know is true. Discourage others to be like, to do likewise. This church is a sign of spiritual maturity. It acknowledges that those who whisper disparagingly behind someone's back will just as likely be doing it to you at some point if they haven't already. It's a maturity that seeks to help others, to reconcile others, to recognise the hurt and disharmony caused by whispering behind a fellow believer's back. Well, a third dynamic that is usually required to be at work, and it's something we probably don't think about all that much, is whether or not we actually like the person in question. It's easy to believe a salacious tidbit about someone we either don't know very well or perhaps we're not close to. Um, Perhaps there's a personality conflict, whatever it is. We're much less likely to believe gossip about someone that that we respect, that we like. Don't allow how you feel about someone to govern your willingness to believe what you may have heard about them. We need to have more depth than to allow our opinions decide what we want to believe about people. Now, now in case you think I'm being a little harsh about what the Bible says about gossip, let me read a few verses to you. Proverbs 2.19, a gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid anyone who talks too much. There's a lot of implication to that verse. James 3.5 says, Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Now, we understand James is talking in 
in the context of the power of the tongue. We spread gossip and it can do untold damage in church life, in individuals' lives. Proverbs 26.20 says, Without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. Don't give it the air it deserves. You know that even when God gave the law to Moses, he said to the people, you must not slander, you must not gossip others. Paul says that, when he, that uh, he, as he is fearful to come along in 2 Corinthians to the Corinthian church and put in order what has, has, has happened there, that uh, one of the evils he's going to find is slander and gossip. And, you know, the antidote is deceptively simple. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's the polar opposite of gossipism. Let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths. Look to build each other up that we may give grace to those who hear. Well, the second observation this morning is an example to reflect on. And, and Nath, Nath um, touched on it last week. Example to reflect on is Paul's grace under fire. His willingness to help by doing what the elders in Jerusalem asked shows a grace that, um, that perhaps we don't always associate with Paul. Certainly I'm guilty of that. I mean, I see Paul as such a confident, powerful, self-reliant, no-nonsense no nonsense kind of character. Tell me, does Paul really need to purify himself with these men and pay their expenses in order to be proven right? Is it really necessary for Paul to defend himself in this situation? Why show any concern for the ill-informed, ignorant or hurtful gossip relating to his ministry, started by those who only seek to oppose the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ? To put it in our vernacular, does he not every, have every right to say, listen, go jump. I'm not going to indulge these troublemakers. They're not my concern. Yet he submits to the elder's suggestion because he seeks to show grace towards those who make judgment calls based out of ignorance while he continues to stand firm in matters of doctrine so that others would not be cast adrift by the false accusations of a few. Now, there was nothing wrong with the church in Jerusalem celebrating their Jewish heritage to the extent that it didn't compromise the gospel message. But we know through Paul's epistles that when some troublemaking Jews tried to force their belief that Gentiles should be circumcised, submitting to the law, it was a different matter. Paul refuses to be silent. He stands up and he, he articulates, he writes, this is wrong. Even Peter himself, start, as he starts to remove himself from the Gentiles for fear of what the Jews will think, Paul stands up to him and says, you are wrong.
I wonder what are the things that we might be dogmatic about that are really just cultural differences. Where might we confuse personal preference with doctrinal zeal? Now, when I was young, I was converted around 18 years of age, and the church I went to, there was uh, a pretty strong belief there that movies, dancing, or drinking alcohol of any time was absolute anathema. And I'm sure I know that there are well-meaning Christians today who believe such a thing as the internet is evil. Now, that's not to... That's not to say that evil people do not pervert these things and use them for evil intent. But where our preference becomes the means through which we judge others, we place burdens on them that God does not. Is anything added to your view of the gospel as you present it to others? Or is our view of godliness too crushing for others to be able to live up to. Paul's primary concern is to reach the heart, knowing that true transformation starts from within. And out of this, all else flows. How might you and I be able to show grace to someone this week? Who will we forgive? Perhaps he doesn't deserve it. Maybe there's tension in a marriage. Maybe there are issues between parents and their kids. Perhaps you've been the victim of rumour or gossip. Will we, we refuse to dwell on past hurts or continue to hold bitterness in our heart toward another who has wronged us? What will those around you learn as you deal with the hurt, injustice or disappointment that you experience in life? Will they see a bitter, vengeful heart or a mature grace that only a true work of God can produce? What examples are we setting in our own homes, in front of our kids, before our spouses, as our neighbours look on and see the way our lives are conducted? as those people that we associate with on a regular basis, how do they see us deal with the challenges of life? Well, there's a warning to pay attention to. Gossip compromises the, the gospel message. There's a template to learn from. Paul's grace under fire. And the third observation is a template to learn from. The rest of our text for today discloses a practical template of what Jesus meant when he sent out the apostles two by two. Please turn with me to to Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. As Jesus is is, um, preparing the apostles to go out and preach. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. He's preparing for the fact that persecution is going to come. And he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as servants, wise as serpents, I should say, and innocent as doves. What's the point Jesus is making in Matthew ten sixteen? He tells us we're like sheep among wolves in the world that we live in. But what does it mean for us? How are we as sheep to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves? 
Now, I confess I, I read a, an article from John Piper a few years ago that really helped me to, to clarify myself what this verse might be talking about. So here's what I believe Jesus is getting at. Vulnerability, not stupidity, is the point of calling a sheep. The follower of Jesus is a sheep to the extent that they are dependent upon him. Are we not? We're sheep in that Jesus is our shepherd, is he not? He's our protector and our defender. But as sheep, we're not to be dim-witted like sheep are before predators. You know, sheep sort of, they're not the sharpest tools in the shed, I guess. Um, sometimes they just freeze. Maybe, maybe the wolf won't see me. Sometimes they just follow after, after the other. Oh, well, it's not my fault. He ran in towards where the, sheep, uh, where the wolves were, so I just followed after him. Rather, Jesus says they are to be wise. Notice he doesn't say deceptive. He says to be wise like a snake. Regardless of what we think of snakes, they generally try and get out of the way if they're in trouble. Go and hide when they're in danger. So yes, we will be among wolves as we present the gospel message. We'll be vulnerable in doing so. But when they attack, there's nothing wrong with, with getting out of the way. When they open their mouths, we don't just go and jump right in. And not only that, we're told we're to be as innocent as doves. Not giving any legitimate reason for them to accuse us of injustice, hypocrisy or immorality. Now again, note, there is a difference between being innocent and being naive. Keep our reputation as clean as we can. Now as we, as we turn back to Acts chapter 21... From verse 27 begins a series of events with Paul's arrest and subsequent defence before various councils, rulers and kings that show him living out these principles as he goes about uh, dealing with the circumstances that he finds himself in. From verse 27 in Acts chapter 21, we find that he's falsely accused of teaching the forsaking of their Jewish heritage and bringing a Gentile into the temple. The crowd are whipped into such a frenzy that there is murderous intent in their minds and he is rescued by the tribune. We later find his name is Claudius Lysesis and he had control of a garrison of soldiers in Jerusalem. But continue on with me and see how Paul echoes the words of Jesus. Wise as servants, innocent as doves. 21 and verse 37, read it with me. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Paul asked to speak to the crowd. He goes on to clear up a misconception over who he was and he lets the Romans know where he was from, Tarsus. Tarsus was known as a university city. It was kind of on a par with Athens as a, as a place of learning. Capital of the region. Far from being silent, Paul's on the front foot making an opportunity. Out of nothing. Follow on with me. 
chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, as he's then allowed to speak, brothers and fathers, hear the defence that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. He grabs the crowd's attention by speaking in their mother tongue, Hebrew. They weren't expecting it, obviously. He goes on to identify with them through the chapter by saying that he was trained under the great Gamaliel, a passionate follower of the law, a passionate persecutor of Christians, even going from house to house, dragging them away as he was allowed to. Paul's taking opportunity to find common ground with these people and they listened intently to what he had to say until we get to verse 21. And he says, Jesus asked me to go away to the Gentiles. Then in verse 22, look what we read. Up until this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying he should be examined with flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, it is not lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. And he said, yes. Uh, So the tribune came to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum of money. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. About to be whipped, Paul asked a question. Uh, just Just before this takes place, Is it permissible to flog a man who is a Roman citizen? You see, Paul knew the answer. Paul knew there was no way that that the Romans would be permitted to flog a Roman citizen without just cause. And he further reinforces his rights by pointing out Roman citizenship was his by birth. The tribune says, it cost me a lot of money. Paul says, well, actually I was born a Roman citizen. Now, we don't know how Paul was a Roman citizen. The text doesn't tell us. But the most likely cause is probably that some family member had paid some valuable uh, service to Rome, and so he was uh, allowed to take on Roman citizenship. Thus, Paul received his Roman citizenship by birth. Now, the next day, Claudius, the tribune, He decides, I've got to try and get to the bottom of what's going on here. So he gets the leaders of the Jews together, the Sanhedrin together, to try and sort out what is going on. Chapter 23 and from verse 1, read with me again. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you not sitting... Are you not... Sorry. It is pretty, pretty forceful. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, order me to be struck? He's pointing out the hypocrisy of the, of the events. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. 
For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. See, Paul acknowledges his error. Look, while I was pointing out hypocrisy, I accept that I need to show proper respect. Perhaps he's trying to cool the temperature in the room, but it's not long before he realises what the true intent of this group is, and so he lights a fuse. He uses their own differences to divide and undermine their unity of purpose. You see, some believed in the resurrection of the dead that Paul passionately proclaimed. Yet the Sadducees didn't. Here's Paul being wise but innocent. Well, after a brief encounter with the risen Lord, Paul hears of a plot to kill him by the Jews. His nephew comes to him. And his nephew tells him, I've heard that there are 40 men who have made an oath before God not to eat until you are dead. Now, we know, we understand from from reading the text that these men must have got terribly hungry because he instructed his nephew to go and inform the tribune, knowing full well that Claudius would not allow this to happen to a Roman citizen. So it is that Paul is sent away safely to see the governor, Felix. Wise as a servant, as a serpent, innocent as doves. Vulnerable, not stupid. Now you you might ask why. Why would someone go through all that Paul had been through He must have known that he was going to upset people in his ministry. And we've already seen through Acts that proclaiming the gospel has resulted in much persecution for disciples of Jesus. Is it enough to just say, well, Paul was a religious zealot? He had great zeal. He must have had a great uh, capacity to go on regardless of what transpired around him. He was confident in his knowledge of the scriptures he had a strong faith. Is it enough to say he, he, he was just a zealot? If so, how is he any different to those who have zeal for their gods today? How is he any different to other people who, have, who are zealous for proclaiming their messages to us? You know, the people that say how important it is to, to have a really comfortable retirement, make sure you've got lots of super, or they have quick reach schemes or the cults and false religions. They're all typified by leaders that are zealous for the cause. The difference is that Paul's faith, that which every Christian readily embraces, is not dependent on their own merit, on their own attempts to appease God. The Christian faith is founded on the completed work of Christ. His followers acknowledge they are saved by faith according to the grace of God. And it's because there is a passion to share what we experience with all of those around us 
that we have a desire to proclaim it. To proclaim it here at Canterbury Gardens, to proclaim it in our homes, to proclaim it before those that uh, we come into contact with from day to day. And as a church, we would love to tell you more. We would love to walk with you in your journey to know the Jesus of this book. If you are sitting here this morning and you have to acknowledge you don't truly know the Jesus of this book, we would encourage you to come and talk to someone. That we might be able to share with you more some of the glory that Jesus Christ proclaims. The gospel message. Well, as we conclude, gossip and innuendo is a destructive pastime. And it should never have place in the church. But as I was thinking about it, it's even more relevant today than ever. And it's more relevant today than ever because of the social media world that we live in. We have nameless people say horrible things about others that they can't possibly know is true. Friends, that should never be in the church. Instead, we should be seeking to show grace to each other. Psalm 1914 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. Now, just before we move on, if you're in a position that you've heard something that truly troubles you, that has upset you, we would encourage you to come and talk to someone about it. A mature Christian, one of the pastors or elders, so that perhaps we can, can help you to, to be guided toward a, a biblical thought process about what you've heard. But most of us know gossip for what it is. How can you and I show grace in whatever the circumstances of life we find ourselves in? Good, bad or indifferent. We are to be like sheep among wolves, vulnerable, not stupid, wise, not deceptive, Innocent, not naive, not ignorant. I just want to close by reading Paul's words to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 and 23, and it describes Paul's heart for ministry. Listen to what he says. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became one as outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. There was no compromise in Paul's beliefs, faith, in his resolve 
No compromise in his willingness to follow wherever Jesus called him. He ministered with boldness, yet he was wise to how he could best proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer as a leadership is that we, as we go about our week, that we consider how we might best be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those we come into contact with. Let's pray. Our Father God, we want to thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your faithfulness each day, new every morning. We want to thank you for the grace that you have poured out to us. And we would ask that that grace is something that we can in turn share with others. That they might see through us just a small glimpse of what a mighty God you are. Cause us to be wise as we uh, are among the wolves that we may show your love, your power, your mercy, your grace in all the circumstances we find ourselves in. Give us opportunity to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those around us. Help us to be wise as we seek to do that. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.